Okay, so this Torah portion this week is Ki Tisa. Ki Tisa is Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, right through, it's a pretty long one, right through chapter 34. And it is the centerpiece of Ki Tisa is the golden, the episode of the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people say, where's, where's that man Moses? Where'd he go? Aaron, you make a God for us and lead us. And Aaron, you know, hems and haws. is just like they're an open rebellion. And he says, okay, bring me all their gold and all your jewelry uh, tomorrow, he says. And I'll, I'll um, make, a, I'll cast a, a, an a idol for us all. And so the next day they come, they bring all their gold. He puts, he, he creates a mold. He creates a, 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 he creates a golden calf. And all the people worship the calf. And um, meanwhile, up on the mountain, we know the story. Moses, God says to Moses in a great, great line, your people who you brought out of Egypt are really losing it down there. You better get down there and fix things, Moses. And so Moses hurries down. He's got the tablets with the commandments in his hands. He sees the revelry around this golden idol. He smashes the um, uh, tablets. He, 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 uh, he, um, what's this? What's he musters the Levites to put down the, 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 the whole, the whole organized um, uh, uh, society of the Israelites ready, marching through the wilderness, ready to march through the wilderness is in complete chaos. The, he musters the Levites who put down the rebellion. He grinds the golden calf into dust and makes people drink it down in their mixing their water in. Okay, so, you know, as Barbara was saying a few minutes ago, if you don't like, if you, if you don't like this story, um, go read some Greek myths. That'll cheer you up. Um, anyway, and I also welcome anybody to raise their hand or comment at any time, as you know. Um, and uh, this is a symbolic story. It's it's, it's 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 a mythic telling. Moses then has to go back to God and beg God to forgive the people so that God will, so that they can continue to the promised land. And God is saying, are you kidding me? Look at these people. They can't even last for five minutes without you. Um, and Moses uh, says, just please pardon them. I know they're stiff necked. And God says, okay, I'll pardon them. But, you know, um, uh, I'll pardon them. And, and Moses says, okay, God, now I need something from you. If I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here and I need to know you better, please show me your essence. And in that next dramatic section, God responds, no, no mortal can see my essence while alive. Uh, it, you can't see the essence and live. 
So instead, I'll let you see what, what my, my the consequences of my presence, my, you know, the, what comes after me, my actions, my compassion and my goodness. And he puts Moses up in a cleft in the rock. And it says, God covers Moses with God's hand as God's presence passes by saying, Adonai, Adonai, God who is compassionate uh, and gracious, patient, long suffering, forgiving unto the thousands generation, but not forgiving all sins, holding, holding people responsible unto the third and fourth generation. And Moses is so, at that point, Moses, having had this encounter, which in the Torah is, it clearly stands out as the closest encounter a mortal can have with the creator, with the creator, with the divine essence of creation. Uh, Moses then writes down two new sets of tablets. And as he comes down from the mountain, it says his face was radiating so much light that the people couldn't look at him. And, they, and so he covered his face with a veil. And that's where the um, portion ends. It's a lot of action in this portion. Um, by the way, as some of you know, the word for rays of light, keren, is also the word for horns. And this is where in the translations of the Bible comes the idea that Moses had horns and becomes this under, and then that gets um, conflated with the devil eventually that all Jews have horns and uh, uh, Michelangelo's Moses has horns. Um, it's, that's a whole other excursion, but what it means in the Torah is rays of light. Um, okay, so it's just a great story. It's so powerful. It's unforgettable, really. Um, uh, uh, Cecil, B, Cecil B. DeMille did a great job with it, don't you think? And um, what I want to do today is take an excursion from, the land, from this text into the most kind of um, juicy wordplay, which is the way that much Torah commentary is generated that explores that 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 explores what is idolatry what what does it mean to worship idols and i've taught this before but it's just absolutely one of my favorite pieces of torah interpretation so i'm going to share it with you and the origin of it is the zohar the introduction the very first the, the opening of the Zohar. So for those unfamiliar, what is the Zohar? The Zohar is a kind of phantasmagorical, um, uh, multi-volume text that was um, written in the uh, uh, 13th century in Spain by Rabbi Moshe de Leon, who attributes, who, who historians think was probably writing this in a, in a state of automatic writing, inspiration, 
um, because it, it's wild, it's, it's amazing. Uh, and he ascribes it, attributes it to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was a second century rabbinic kind of mm, heroic figure, um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So the Zohar is an incredibly elaborate um, um, commentary on the Torah, but a commentary that is esoteric. In other words, it sees the divine imprint on every word, on every syllable, on every letter, on every vowel. It's like the, my teacher, Malila Helner, who some of you have learned from, describes it like, you know, if we're learning to play the piano or learning our chord scales, the Zohar is like these guys who are jazz masters who are on this improvisational riff. And you don't even know how they got there or where they're going. If, if you know a little music, it helps. If you know a lot of music, it helps a lot more. If you know a little Torah, okay. If you know a lot of Torah, you can sort of follow them. You need a teacher. This is what I've learned about the Zohar. But there are some passages in the Zohar that, that are easier to penetrate. And this one, I just adore. So let me explain. I'm gonna put up the Torah text first. There it is. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who shall go before us. For that fellow Moses, that man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. I think this is supposed to be funny, by the way. Um, Aaron said to them, okay, you men, take off the gold rings that are on your ears and the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, this is your God, or the Hebrew word is Ele Elohecha. Hold on. Oh, I can write on this. I'm going to do that. Just a second. Ele Elohecha. These are your gods, or this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, now, the, what the Zohar is going to do is play with this word, Aleph, Aleph, Lamed, Hey, these, or this, are, is your God, or are your God, Aleph. So let me go up to the top of the page, I'll show what I mean. Now, this is from the Zohar. Rabbi Elazar, so this is the 13th century written. Rabbi Elazar is talking about in the beginning because it's the beginning of the Zohar. So they're talking about creation because the Zohar follows the line of the Torah. 
wait, I have to make sure I can see comments in the chat if anyone writes it. There you go. Um, Rebel eyes are open. Lift up your eyes on high and behold who has created these things. That is from Isaiah chapter 40, 26. In Hebrew, it's se'u. I'm going to read that. Se'u marom enechem. Ur'u mi bara ele. Isaiah in chapter 40, which I'm going to have us look at in a little while, has this beautiful phrase. Lift your eyes on high and see me vara ele, who made these things? Ele, there's that word ele. Then in typical Zohar talk, so let me just skate through this. Lift up your eyes to what place? Says Rabbi Elazar, to the place where all eyes are turned. It is the concealed Atika, which means the most ancient one, the most holy ancient one. And in the Zohar, the Atika is the aspect of the divine that is beyond conceptualizing. Our minds reach for it, but cannot grasp it. We reach for it. We sense this immense everything, nothingness. And that is considered to be the origin of creation. Wherein lies the question, who has created these? Mi bara ele. And who is this? Since one can ask about him, though he is concealed and not revealed, he is called who? Because beyond him, one may not pose such questions. Thus, the end of heaven is called who? Okay, so let me put this in, in plainer English, and then I'll come back to the text. For the Zohar, the ultimate name of God is me, mem yod, which means who, with a question mark. Okay. The, 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 the greatest name of God is who. Who made this? If we ask me bara ele, if we can ask that question, that is going to be the um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? That is going to be the prescription for avoiding idolatry. If whatever we encounter, we're asking who. is beautiful, isn't it? It's like, as soon as you think you know, you've lost the name of God. The name of God is who? And in Hebrew, that's me, which can be very confusing. If you're not a Hebrew speaker, it's like, who's on first? Me, you know, it's all completely ridiculous. But the Hebrew word me means who. So that's what the Zohar is reaching for. When, and they use the phrase from Isaiah, lift up your eyes and say, who created these? Me, 
Who created them? Who? That's the name of God. The question. I adore this. Um, again, as we've, I've used this phrase before from Rabbi Heschel, radical amazement. If you can live your one's life, one can live. Uh, oh, David, let me uh, get to that in just a moment. If one can live one's life in a condition of radical amazement, one is in relationship with the unknowable. And that is the relationship with God. If we don't open ourselves to that radical amazement, we are going to, um, we are going to wind up worshiping idols. Um, our own conceptualizations, our own, the works of our own hands. Um, David said, there is relation of who to where are you, Ayecha, which is the question God asks Adam in the garden. Ayecha, where are you? And we always say that, you know, God knew where Adam was, God's God. So God was asking Adam a different question. Where are you in your consciousness right now? Are you in relationship to me? Or in relationship to your own fear? Or what are you, what, what, where are you? Deborah says, and Moses becomes lit up in this portion, as I was describing, through interacting with God as when we do, when we study Torah and interact with the Torah and one another. The idol can be destroyed, but the power of the interaction cannot. Thank you, Deborah. Okay, so let me go back to the text of the Zohar for a moment. Okay. Now talking about this who, this is typical Zohar language, the name of God that is just a question beyond our ability to grasp. And it exists and exists not. It is hidden deep inside the name. Okay, what name? The name Elohim. Now I'm going to describe this to you. I'm going to make this bigger. There, so we can all see it well. I love this Google Doc here. Um, God desired to reveal God's self and to be called this name, Elohim. So in the Zohar, each name of God is a different aspect of the divine. There's the aspect that's just a question, beyond, beyond. But then there's the aspects of God that we find ourselves relating to somehow. And one of those aspects is the name Elohim. So he clothed himself in a precious radiant garment and created these, and these ascended to the name. Okay, don't, don't break your teeth on that. What that means is this name, Elohim, is the word, is an anagram. Ele, Aleph, Lamed, He, these, and Mem Yud, reversed, me. So Elohim is an anagram of who created these. 
Elohim being a, an aspect of God in the Zohar that is an element where we can perceive the who in creation. In other words, when we look at any aspect of creation, we can look at a tree and when we say, when we address the tree and say, who are you? How? When everything is a divine mystery, we see God, we perceive the divine in that created object, Aleph, these. So, In the Zohar, what happens next is that they made a golden calf and they said, Ele Elohecha Yisrael. These are your gods, Israel. And what the Zohar tries to say about this, and what I'm going to try to say, is that what's missing from the Israelites' declaration of these are your gods is the question, who? Their certainty is idolatry. Hmm. Um, so, so idolatry is when you address the world without asking who's behind it all. Um, So this is just one of my favorite things, using wordplay. So there, oh, so what I wanted to, I have to share one more thing. David, I'll get to your comment in a sec. Um, which is the first line of Genesis. In the beginning, Breshit, bara Elohim, et ha-shamayim Okay, because we're not quite done with our word, word game yet. Bara Elohim. Elohim created. Now, if we go to the line in Isaiah, which uh, is up here, in Isaiah it says, Lift your eyes up high and see me, Bara. Eleph, who created these? And the Zohar says that these words, bara Elohim, and me bara Eleph, take a look at them. If you take the me that's over here and just stick it on the end, it says bara Elohim. So Isaiah is saying that if you look up at the up, lift up your eyes and say, who created these? You are in relationship with Elohim, the creator. Who created the bara Elohim. If you're worshiping the golden calf and you just say, Ele Elohecha. Yisrael, Ele Elohecha. 
You're missing the question. All right. Um, and David says, and also they are proclaiming that they're gods, there are gods, plural. Um, it would appear that way from the grammar, um, David, yes. Uh, okay. So I know that sounds convoluted if you're a new to Torah study, but if you get into it, it just becomes fun. It's another way, it's the, it, word play is one of the Jewish ways towards blowing our minds open. And so that's what we do. Um, so uh, I've been, um, a man named Bernard Starr, who comes occasionally to our classes and services, also as a writer. And he, he, he sent me a column that he'd written for, uh, I think it was the Times of Israel blogs. And he was saying, and forgive me if I've said this already, but it's staying with me really deep, that we've already won the, we already won the giant lottery by being sentient beings. Um, that the odds of just being aware, just being sentient in this universe appear to be so infinitesimal um, that uh, if, you're worrying, if you're thinking that you really have had rotten luck in life, you already won by just being alive and aware. And that's been very comforting to me. Uh, and so a lot of times I've been thinking, oh, not even what an incredible world, but oh, I get to be aware. And in that moment, I am in effect saying, who, right? How? And then why? That's being in relationship with the divine. If we concretize our passion towards an object that we think, or a concept that we think we understand or can control, we are worshiping idols. And that's how the Zohar understands what the golden calf represents because they forgot to ask who as they made this God that would make them feel more confident and certain. So now what I wanna spend some of our time on is that chapter from Isaiah, because it is one of the most extraordinary pieces of biblical rhetoric that I know. It's chapter 40, I'm gonna share the screen in a little bit. So chapter 40, most scholars agree, Isaiah is 66 chapters, the book, but chapter 40 to 66 appear to be a second Isaiah. In other words, somehow, because the historical context is different, the style of language changes, the, it's so discontinuous from what came before it that people are mystified as what's going on here. And the only conclusion is that these two different prophets at some point got merged into one scroll. That's, we don't know. In any event, chapter 40 
acts as a um, the beginning of a discourse and is also the Haftorah portion for the book of, for the first chapter of Genesis, and you'll see why. And Isaiah is addressing the Israelites. I'm going to share my screen. Hold on. Whoops. There we go. This is chapter 40, uh, verse 12. Now that's where we're going to start our close reading. But just to give you an idea of how it begins, there are some very famous lines here. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and declare to her that her term of service is over, that her iniquity is expiated, for she has received at the hand of the eternal double for all her sins. A voice rings out in the desert. Clear in the desert a road for the Lord. Level in the wilderness a highway for our God. Let every valley be raised, every hill and mount made low. Let the rugged ground become level and the ridges become a plain. And the presence of the Lord shall appear and all flesh as one shall behold it. Um, that passage is um, used by Martin Luther King in the I have a dream speech. And then it says, a voice rings out, proclaim. And another asks, what shall I proclaim? And here we're gonna get into what Isaiah is reaching for, which is that we're nothing. That doesn't mean we're not important. We're all flesh is grass. All its goodness like flowers of the field, grass withers, flowers fade when the breath of the eternal blows on them. Indeed, a human being is but grass. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God is always fulfilled. Um, okay. It's beautiful, beautiful rhetoric. And now Isaiah is speaking to his audience about the nature of the divine. Who measured the water? And this translation is his and him. So be it for now. Who measured the waters with the hollow of his hand and gauged the skies with a span and meted earth's dust with a measure and weighed the mountains with a scale and the hills with a balance? Okay, me. Who? Who did this? Me. Who has, who has, now this case is asking us, who has plumbed the mind of Yudhe What human could speak knowledgeably about God's plans? At Minoat, whom did God consult? Who taught God? Who guided God in the way of right? who guided God in knowledge, showed God the path of wisdom. Look, the nations are but a drop in a bucket, reckoned as dust on a balance. The very coastlands God lifts like moats. Lebanon, where the forests are, is not fuel enough, nor its beasts enough for sacrifice. 
All nations are not in God's sight. God accounts them as less than nothing. To whom then, el mi, can you imagine or liken the creator? What form can compare to God? An idol? A woodworker shaped it. A smith overlaid it with gold, forging links of silver. And as a gift, he chose the mulberry, a wood that does not rot, then seeks a skillful woodworker to make a firm idol that will not topple. Okay, this is the golden calf description here. And then Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the very first? Have you not discerned how the earth was founded? It is the one who is enthroned above the vault of the earth so that its inhabitants seem as grasshoppers who spread out the skies like the gauze, stretched them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings potentates to naught, makes rulers of the earth as nothing. Hardly are they planted, hardly are they sown, hardly has their stem taken root in earth when God blows upon them and they dry up and the storm bears them off like straw. To whom then can you liken me? To whom can I be compared? Says the Holy One. Now our verse, lift your eyes and see who created these. The one who sends out the heavenly host by count who calls each star by name. Because of God's great might and vast power, not one heavenly constellation fails to appear. So why do you say, O Jacob, why declare, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? yod is the most ancient, original power, creator of the earth from end to end. He never grows faint or weary. His wisdom cannot be fathomed. He gives strength to the weary, fresh vigor to the spent. Youths may grow faint and weary, young men stumble and fall, but they who trust in yod who ask the question, who, shall renew their strength as eagles grow new plumes. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall march and not grow faint. I'm very fond of that chapter, I think, across 2,500, 2,700 years. Isaiah seems to have been inspired to me. A being who would tell people, get your head out of the earth, out of the sand or out of your ass. Look up. Come on. 
just to be is a gift. That's what Heschel said. Just to be is a blessing. David says, Job also ends with an exposition in which God asks, do you know who? The end of Job is amazing. This, this, this astonishing uh, kind of uh, crescendo of who made the steam come out of the horse's nostrils? Who did this? Who did that? It's like, and you're wondering what, what divine justice is? You don't know anything. That's the end of Job. And Job is silent. And that silence is not necessarily defeat. That silence at the end of Job is awareness. Oh, my suffering, I don't need to, yeah, yes, there's suffering, but I'm part of everything that is. What if the children of Israel, what if the children of Israel were capable while Moses is gone of remembering this? They wouldn't freak out. They wouldn't lose their, they wouldn't lose their bearings. They wouldn't dissolve into disorder. They wouldn't insist on make a God that we can see and then give all their jewelry just for that, right? Think of that symbolically. They give all their wealth to something that they can feel certain about. That's idolatry. When God says in the Ten Commandments, I am yud Hey vav Hey," I am the source of life who brought you out of the narrow place, the house of bondage. We're talking both about a political and physical liberation, but also a spiritual and liberation of consciousness the liberation the house of bondage is also the one we all put ourselves in in our desperation for certainty and control then when we don't get what we want to sound very buddhist we suffer excruciatingly because we're attached to the works of our own hands that's idolatry God says, do not place any false gods between you and me, yod Don't make an image of them. Don't worship them. Don't, none of that. That will cut you off from this divine consciousness that I'm trying to um, um, uh, um, elicit in you. Then when you get to the third commandment, it says, don't take my name in vain. Again, it's another bulwark against idols, against idolatry. Don't, don't try to, you're not going to succeed in grasping me and holding me. You can only succeed in nurturing a relationship with me that is fluid, that gives no, no guarantees, but that in each moment that you experience it, you have everything you need. 
it's so ironic to me personally that I can be so preoccupied, then have a moment when I recognize this is astonishing. And I'm liberated from my suffering in that moment. Just like that. It's amazing. And then I will slip back in. But if my intention is not to put false idols between me and that consciousness, then I have more and more moments when I am not suffering, despite all the hardship of life. That's spiritual liberation. That's being in relationship to the one who frees us from bondage. So that's my teaching about these are your gods of Israel, thanks to the Zohar and my other teachers. Isn't that marvelous? Let's keep training ourselves not to read the Torah concretely. We read it concretely as a great myth, the golden calf, the smashing of the tablets. These are, you know, we learn through these stories. But then if we think we're reading an actual history, well, why did Moses do that? And the Levites killed them when they put down the rebellion. And da, da, da. again, read the Mabarata. Read Greek myths. We get, people are getting smashed all the time. It's like, that's not the point of the story. And our ancestors were not barbarians that we need to like apologize for. This is a sacred myth telling us what is idolatry in the understanding of ancient Israel that is still language that we can use in our own lives today. And the Zohar, again, gives us the link there by saying God's name is who. If you say who made these, whatever this is, it pops you right out of our natural inclination, predisposition to get into the, the kind of the, the muck and mire of our lives. That'll always be there. But if we have a relationship with the question, our whole experience of life can be different. Even the bad stuff. Marcia says, but isn't it human to reach for certainty when we live in the world? How can we balance our desire for certainty without being unspiritual? Perfect question. That is the question of anyone Anyone who, it, who has, anyone who's dis, who has found themselves dissatisfied with just reaching for certainty, saying there's gotta be more than this, is embarked on the spiritual journey. And I would say that the beautiful balance of Judaism is that six days a week, we engage in the world. But every seventh day, we have to disengage, and that's the fourth commandment, in order to reclaim this consciousness so that we can live our life both in the world, but also with perspective on it. All flesh is grass. 
everything comes and goes. It's like, okay, don't hold it so hard. Don't take yourself so seriously. Celebrate, breathe, rejoice, love, right? It's always gonna be an intertwining. That's when I, another thing I love about the Jewish framing of Shabbat is that six days you shall labor and on the seventh day, reclaim your holy perspective on the world by looking up and stopping for a little while. Not just to rest, but to re, reorient. So that's how I see it, Marsha. That's a perfect question. Deborah said, I am thinking that one of my false idols has to do with the tendency to judge. Yeah, you and all of us, yeah. And Naomi says, what a powerful teaching today. Thank you so much. Oh, you need to go now. Mm, bye. Great. And Barbara raised her hand. Why don't you unmute yourself, Barbara, and, and, and share? Wow, that was very, very beautiful and very deep. I feel like I could spend like a whole year just exploring what you've talked about in the last 15 minutes. It's wonderful. And the question, one of the, one of the questions I have is how one understands the depths of suffering in the midst of this teaching. Right. As I understand Buddhist teaching, our, it's our attachment to our suffering that causes us the greatest anguish, asking why me? And this isn't the way it was supposed to be. And all these questions where we are presuming we know how things are supposed to be. You can read Job that way, that Job's suffering is because he keeps saying, I've been good, why is this happening? And then at the end of Job, the answer comes from the whirlwind, right? God, remember, God is described as a voice from a whirlwind in Job. It's like, this is not, we're not, yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's like um, uh, saying all of your sense of certainty about how things should be is just getting in the, your way of engaging with life as it is, including the suffering. Um, and uh, this can be problematic when you read other passages in the Bible where God promises that if you follow my commandments, you won't miscarry and your sheep will da 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 da. Um, I don't lean on those passages to, of, of some kind of tit for tat divine reward to uh, explain life because my experience is so my experience of life is so different from that. So I go, I, I go beyond them toward these much, these sort of like, I would say deeper, um, deeper passages, Barbara. There is suffering in the world. It happened as soon as we were incarnated. We were then beings with appetites and desires and drives with knowledge that we were gonna die when we ate from that tree. Um, and as soon as we ate from that tree, we were incarnated and along with it comes suffering. Uh, so, so 
I don't, I, if we can accept that and still ask the question who, I think our suffering is really, really, our burden is really lightened. Or as we say, instead of saying, why me? Say, why not me? You know, when bad stuff happens and just, why not me? I'm not in charge. The world's way more complicated than I can understand it. So I offer no divine promise uh, that if we're good, we don't suffer. Um, that's not what the world tells me, uh, my experience tells me, but I can tell you about my experience of lifting my eyes up from, the, from the, all of the turmoil, remembering that I'm embedded in a divine mystery and all of the suffering stops ru ruling my life. I'm not thinking so much of my personal suffering because <clears throat> I see that as a um, really rich source of growth, more understanding. Um, for example, I think of the Holocaust and how people mm -hmm. deal with God and their relation to God post-Holocaust. And also when my mother was dying recently, I just, there's a moment of breakthrough of how could somebody so beautiful have to experience such suffering? She was in a lot of pain. And it just shattered all my beliefs about many things. Wow. I hear you. I can't answer that question, but I appreciate that you asked, how can this be? How, how? Just hold the question because that is the way it is, isn't it? Yeah, thanks. That was so, so perfectly expressed. If we insist that our minds can, can somehow grasp and comprehend the reason for all this, then we're gonna suffer even more. But if we can accept that there is a question, who, that is beyond our ability to conceptualize, conceptualize but that we can be in relationship with, then for me, my grip is loosened. And loosening that grip frees up every part of me to be alive within and in spite of all of these painful questions. We can ask them anguishedly. We can ask them curi with curiosity. We can ask them with joy. It's like uh, the questions aren't gonna go away, but how we approach them can change. Thank you. Thank you.